Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. What a blessing it is to be with you this morning, albeit virtually. I want to thank Marissa and your lay leadership for inviting me here this morning. And I'm looking forward to journeying along with you in these coming weeks and months as St. Matthew's engages more deeply in our diocesan season of racial healing, justice, and reconciliation. This morning, I want to begin by taking a look at our ancestor Jacob's situation in the passage from Genesis. It's that famous scene of Jacob wrestling with some being, maybe a man, maybe an angel, scriptures, different interpretations of scripture differ. The important thing for us this morning is to recall why Jacob was there in the first place. You see, Jacob was returning to his homeland after living in exile for 20 years because he had tricked his blind father, Isaac, into bestowing on him, Jacob, the blessing that should have gone to his older brother, Esau. That blessing, like a curse, was believed to release a power that effectively determined the destiny of the recipient. So this was not something incidental that Jacob stole. Jacob had to stay away because he stole his brother's inheritance and Esau had threatened to kill him. So in this morning's passage, Jacob is returning to Canaan with the fabulous wealth he has accumulated while staying with his brother, Uncle Laban, flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, servants, two wives, and many children. He sends word ahead to his brother Esau that he seeks reconciliation. And he hopes to pay off Esau by offering him generous gifts. What he hears back, he's not sure about because Esau says he intends to meet him along with 400 men. What could that mean? So Jacob was wrestling with many things that night. He was wrestling with his guilt over having stolen his brother's birthright inheritance to begin with. He was wrestling with anxiety over whether Esau would accept his apology and his offer of a payoff. He is anxious over whether Esau still wants to kill him. Esau could come under cover of night to exact revenge. Could all this wrestling be a panic attack? Who knows? We do know that Jacob decides to protect what he's got by sending his family, his servants, and his property ahead of him across the Jabbok River. And he remains behind, all alone, to wrestle with all of these issues until daybreak. And if you remember your Hebrew Bible history, it turns out all right. Esau is moved to reconcile with his brother, and we never hear much about him again. Here in the United States of America, the word birthright has another common understanding, not one based on birth order in our family of origin. It is one based on an ideal articulated in our Declaration of Independence with these familiar words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you were raised like I was in a small town like Glastonbury, Connecticut, you grew up hearing these words with an assurance 
that they applied to you. Glastonbury in the 1950s was a farm town with 5,000 people and two working dairy farms on Main Street. Life was simple. All the houses of worship were Christian. We all seemed to share a common outlook on life. And with the exception of the Jamaican seasonal workers who came to work on the farms, we were all white. It wasn't until my early teens when the civil rights marches were there to see on national television, that I developed an awareness that not all US citizens enjoyed the same assurance of their national birthright as I did. It wasn't until high school that I discovered embedded in the US Constitution, the principle that people who were not white men weren't fully citizens. They either didn't count at all, or if they were enslaved African persons, they only counted as three-fifths of a person. I didn't realize that from the very beginning, those self-evident truths really only applied to white men. They didn't apply to women of any race or culture. They didn't apply to Native Americans. And they certainly didn't apply to the enslaved African people who since 1619 had been transported to North America for the sole purpose of serving in chattel slavery. They were not considered human. They were considered to be personal property, to be inventoried like a horse or a mule or a wagon. The period after the Civil War, known as Reconstruction, was supposed to have been a time of healing and repairing of the racial divide in our country. Instead, what gains were made were rapidly taken away with change in Congress and presidents, with the backlash of Jim Crow laws and black codes in the South and elsewhere. In the lifetimes of many of us, the civil rights movement of the 60s led to the passage of the Civil Rights Acts in 1960, 64, and 68. Historic achievements designed finally to end the legacy of slavery and its aftermath. By the time the rules gradually began to change in the 1960s, it's almost like it was too late. Like a cancer that multiplies on itself and eats all the healthy tissue in its path, chattel slavery left its ugly imprint on every aspect of our society, our government, and our economy. It is from that sin of chattel slavery, institutionalized in our founding documents, that our society has yet to recover and for which our non-white brothers and sisters bear a disproportionate burden to this day. Even with the election of the first black president, we have only scratched the surface of the legacy of slavery. It is part of the very fabric of American society. The question facing our church today is, what can we as American Christians do to address what Pastor Jim Wallace has called America's original sin, the legacy of slavery, social and racial injustice and inequality. Or put it another way, the stealing of the birthright of American citizens based upon race. If we consider sin to be anything that separates us from God and one another, then we as American Christians proud as we are of our constitutional experiment in representative democracy, need to be honest with ourselves that racism is our original sin.
just as traditional church doctrine teaches that original sin is with us from birth, so racial injustice and inequality have been with us almost since the first white European settlers landed on the shores of North America. And then some, 100, and then some 170 years later, they built it right into our founding document. It's right there in Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3 of the United States Constitution. We need to acknowledge the uncomfortable truth that our American system, even up to this very day, hasn't worked equally for everybody because it was never designed to work equally for everybody. In 2018, the Episcopal Church in Connecticut acknowledged that for far too long, our lamp has been shrouded under the bushel basket of systemic racism and racial inequities. And that to let it shine, we as a church need to be intentional about confronting those systemic inequities. We recognize that for far too long, we have been complicit in stealing the birthright of our brothers and sisters of color. Our convention declared a season of racial healing, justice and reconciliation, calling on every Episcopalian and every congregation to prayerfully reflect and take action to address persistent and systemic inequities and prejudice in our church and in our society. This season is firmly grounded in three of the vows we make at our baptism. One, to seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Two, to strive for justice and peace among all people. And third, to respect the dignity of every human being. It can be hard for some of us to appreciate the persistence and scope of racial inequality in our society when we live and work in communities where virtually everyone is white. The pattern of our lives is such that unless we are really intentional about it, we don't typically cross paths or meaningfully interact in a truly personal way with people from other racial and ethnic backgrounds. The neighborhoods in which we live, the schools our kids go to, the athletic teams they play on, the churches we attend, all are part of the nucleus of our lives and almost are in this really bizarre way affected by our social legacy of racial inequity, translating into segregation on the basis of race. It has been observed accurately, I think, that we here in the North accomplished by our political subdivisions and our restrictive zoning laws, what forced segregation accomplished in the South. It's just not that obvious. One comment I frequently hear is that after the passage of civil rights laws in the 60s, race was no longer an issue, that the real problem is people continuing to talk about it. And indeed, as a white person, and particularly as a white male, I know that I have the privilege to walk away from these issues, from these conversations at any time and not have to deal with them. And my life wouldn't be nearly as rich, but my daily experiences actually wouldn't change all that much. A person of color doesn't have that privilege. A person of color inheritance inherits the full legacy of racial inequality that dates back to 1619. 
People of color can't walk into a store without assuming they are being watched. They can't go into a drugstore and assume they will find hair products that they use. They can't drive the, down the street and not worry about being pulled over by a police officer. They can't let their teenage sons take out the car without having the talk. And no matter their station in life, they can't assume that they will be treated with respect when in public. How many of you or your parents served in World War II and were beneficiaries of the GI Bill that provided education and mortgage subsidies for qualified veterans? I know my dad did, and that helped him and my mom to get the mortgage on their first and only house. Haven't you always assumed that all veterans receive those benefits? Then you might be shocked to learn that fewer than 4% of black World War II veterans ever received any benefit from the GI Bill. And it wasn't because they didn't apply. Even today, the National Bureau of Economic Research reports that black customers are routinely charged higher rates than white borrowers with similar profiles. They are also systematically denied mortgages that are routinely approved for similarly situated white applicants. Those examples are why it is important that those of us who have the privilege of walking away from these conversations instead choose to engage them and to address the systems that perpetuate inequality. In this very day, the systems and the attitudes that allowed race to be a defining factor in the first place are alive and well, even re-energized. Since the beginning of the season of racial healing, our nation has witnessed the brutal killing of a handcuffed and helpless George Floyd under the knee of a white Minneapolis police officer. We have witnessed the tragic deaths of numerous other people of color, either at the hands of police or at the hands of civilians claiming to act under color of law. In this year of COVID-19, we have witnessed low paid people of color among those considered essential workers who don't have the privilege of working from home or via Zoom, even as the virus itself takes a toll on communities of color greatly disproportionate to their numbers in society. It has become common to speak of the two killer viruses affecting the United States, COVID-19 and systemic racism. As a Christian, to be committed to the reduction and eventual elimination of racial prejudice and racial inequities in our local communities, in our churches, in our nation, and in the world, is to proclaim gospel truth. Racial and social justice are gospel values at the heart of what St. Paul defines as being the body of Christ. That every part of the body is of equal importance and honor. And that when any member of the body is hurting or dishonored, then all of us suffer together. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it, St. Paul admonishes us in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Racial healing, justice, and reconciliation are an important part of the work of God's church in the 21st century, a, con a continuation of God's mission on earth since the time of the prophets. How do we begin this work? 
let me suggest drawing on one of the bedrock principles of Christian spirituality, mindfulness, or attention to Jesus' presence, and your own participation in the wider body of Christ. Be intentional about examining and confronting your own personal experience with race. Make a commitment to do one thing to expand your experience of the body of Christ. Work with Marissa and your parish leaders on bringing your own questions, exploring your own experiences and feelings about race. Perhaps bringing together disparate parts of your community. You'll be amazed that you have more in common than you would have thought. None of us alive today brought about slavery's legacy of racism or the racial inequities operating in our society today. But as the hands and feet of Jesus today, however, we are in a unique position to do something about them. Just as he did when the disciples in this morning's gospel asked Jesus to feed the 5,000, Jesus turns it around and says to us, you feed them, you have all you need, you do something. As we continue in the season of racial healing, justice, and reconciliation, let us open our hearts and commit ourselves to being better than we are and to stand as manifestations of that beloved community for which Jesus gave his life, the body of Christ, strengthening that body, not just for some, but for all of God's children. Let us as a Christian community commit to take up the charge given by the prophet Isaiah I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Amen.